This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 6, 2020. Smart speakers accidentally listen in. Apple puts a time limit on security certificates, but says copy and paste aren't a security issue. Plus, Josh reports from RSA conference in San Francisco. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Josh, it's good to see you back. You've been away. Yeah, I have. I've been at uh, RSA conference the whole past week. We're going to talk about some news, and then a little bit later in the show, we're going to have you tell us what you learned at the RSA conference. Sounds great. Okay, we've talked about smart speakers a number of times on this podcast, and there's an interesting article that came out today, which is essentially repeating what we already know. It says your smart speaker could be listening in on your conversations by accident. But what's interesting is um, this was a study by researchers at Northeastern University and Imperial College London. They found that some speakers, Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, and Cortana, can activate by mistake up to 19 times per day. Um, And it's all down to a simple case of voice assistants mishearing their wake words. Now, I never use Hey Siri. If I have something to ask Siri, I press the button on my watch or on my phone. Uh, I don't use Alexa or any of the others. I would really like to have my own wake word, in which case I would be much more apt to maybe turn these things on. I would like to say, hey, mix a spitalix. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You want to pick a wake word that is very difficult to accidentally say. And and most of these devices don't give you any sort of option like that. Um, And I've always felt that two things, right? You want ideally a device to recognize your voice so that say you have a guest at your home that they can't easily activate it by mistake or on purpose and mess around with you, right? And you also want to be able to pick your wake word. Now, Amazon has sort of kind of done something similar to that, but they they give you like three or four different words that you can choose from. But it's not the same thing really as letting you pick your own wake word. And I understand maybe part of this is it gets a little complicated because you need to pick a wake word that that device is going to consistently understand And, you know, so they don't want you picking something that it's maybe going to misunderstand or maybe not understand your dialect, or maybe you're picking a a made up word like you were suggesting, and it doesn't know how to put that in. How, how, How do you even tell it? I want this word to always be recognized in this way. Was that a made up word or was that an actual word? Yes. Mr. Mixaspitalik was a character in Superman comics. I didn't make that up myself. It's hard to spell. I can't remember how to spell it, but it is a word that would be hard to to recognize. Unless, of course, you're watching a Superman TV show. And the study that they did was based on 125 hours of audio from various Netflix shows, including The Office, The Big Bang Theory, and Narcos. So if you were watching a Superman thing and you had chosen that wake word, um, it could wake up. And what they say is that the HomePod (laughs) was the worst culprit because... Essentially, anytime someone says hey or hi, followed by an S and a vowel, it tends often to wake it up. So like, 
hey, seriously, Josh, you know, that will wake up an iPhone or other iOS device. Yeah. Oops. Sorry. We might have activated somebody's out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. One other bit of news that I want to talk about is, according to the Register, uh, if you don't know the Register, it's a slightly snarky British publication. Apple drops a bomb on long-life HTTPS certificates. Safari to snub new security certs valid for more than 13 months. When I bought SSL certificates for my website in the past, I had an option of buying for one year or two years or five years. What Apple is saying is that Safari will no longer accept HTTPS certificates that are more than a year. They're using 13 months as a loose cutoff, so you won't get caught if it's just a year and a week left in your certificate. But if you have bought certificates that are for multiple years, you won't be able to. Um, now, there's a valid reason for this, because these certificates may have been hacked at some point, and the only way you, you need to not trust certificates too long, because if you've got a certificate for five years that's been hacked, then that's a long time that it can be used fraudulently. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of controversy over this one. Um, originally, I believe this was proposed by Google, the idea of limiting certificate lengths to one year. And uh, and there was a consortium uh, that voted on this and they basically chose not to um, adopt this, you know, industry wide. Um, and so Apple just sort of unilaterally decided, OK, well, so what? We don't care what anyone else says. We're going to do this from now on. And we're doing it in the name of protecting everyone. Right. Um, so as you say, you don't necessarily want certificates to be valid for too far into the future, because if one gets compromised, then now somebody could potentially reuse that certificate. However, there's also ways to revoke a certificate that's known to have been compromised. And so, you know, maybe Apple should have been spending its time on improving or, or encouraging better practices there. Uh, and we're improving those systems. Some are, have argued it's a little controversial and it sort of forced all of these companies that sell certificates to have to change their practices. So now what they're going to have to do instead, and, and this also of course applies to anybody who, um, you know, who runs a website, you're going to have to get new certificates, um, every year instead of maybe getting one certificate and having it last for, for two years. Um, if you've purchased multiple years on, of a certificate, you'll just have to go and re-download another, you know, a, another copy of that certificate that is valid from newer dates. And, uh, and then just, you know, so you'll still be able to get a certificate that lasts that long, sort of, you'll just have to replace it every year. Right. And a lot of times people forget. In fact, I won't mention names, but a very well-known tech website last week um, was all of a sudden unavailable because someone forgot to renew their certificate. When they got notified on Twitter, they took care of it within the hour. But it's a bit of a problem if for some reason you haven't set a reminder um, or if it's not an automatic renewal with whoever issues the certificate. Um, so, you know, th there's, there's always the trade-off between security and convenience. Right. Now, if you're using, interestingly, something like Let's Encrypt, we've mentioned before that Let's Encrypt is, uh, is a service that allows you to get a free certificate for your website, um, but it has a very, very short window that it's valid for, and then it has to be 
to be updated on a regular basis. Um, if you're using something with a very short window like that, that by the way, also bad guys use um, because it's free and, and easy, that is totally safe and fine according to, to Safari. They have no problem with that. So it is, it's a little bit funny, but, um, and some people are not very happy about, about Apple sort of forcing this change on the industry. Um, and when you look at it from the perspective of yes, but if a certificate is compromised, what if it is compromised, say a week or a day after the certificate is issued or even a month? Now you've got, you know, 11 plus months potentially that that certificate is still out there and still valid. So how much is this really helping? You know, that's that's one of those things that people are sort of challenging Apple on, but they've already made their decision and it's happening. It's going to happen. Okay, one final story. We're going to keep this really quick. Um, I find this interesting because if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about um, how your precise location data can be stored in your photos. Um, it's a company called MISK, M-Y-S-K, and they discovered that precise location information can leak through the system pasteboard. Now, they submitted this information to Apple, and Apple said they don't see an issue with this vulnerability. What it is, is um, iOS and iPadOS apps can access the general pasteboard. So if you copy something in one application, go to another, that next application gets access. And this is also the case on the Mac. If you were to copy a photo taken by the built-in camera app to the pasteboard, the GPS coordinates are in that. And again, we'll, I'll put a link to the article on the Intego Mac security blog where I wrote about this. Any app can get that information uh, from the pasteboard. Now, is this a security issue or not? Because the other app might want it. Let's say that I'm copying a photo and pasting it into an app, and I don't know if these exist, but an app where it will use that location information to find information about that location, right? Yeah. So well, I think what's, what's interesting about this, though, is that um, this is, it's using a feature and exploiting it right? This is something that you actually do want, for example, to have a password manager on, on your device that you can open up, copy a password and switch to another app and paste that password. That's how, uh, one of the ways that password managers typically work. Um, sometimes, you know, in fact, increasingly now apps have a built-in capability where you can input a password by tapping in the, the password field. And then in your keyboard, you'll have a, a thing pop up that allows you to, uh, to use a password manager to input the password. Right. So you don't have to copy it and paste it, um, but the app automatically interfaces with your password manager. Right. So it's not that you necessarily always need to have this ability to copy from something else, but let's say that you're using uh, a password manager that's not, that doesn't have that built-in integration with, uh, with Apple's uh, password keyboard button, right? Um, you may actually want legitimately to do this. Also, another example where you may legitimately want to copy something and paste it into another app, maybe you've got... Um, a one-time use password that was emailed to you. And so you open up your email program, copy that, and you wanna be able to paste that into the website, two different apps, and, and perhaps you're using a third-party browser or a third-party email client. And so it's not even necessarily that you're always gonna be using Apple apps that should be allowed to have access to the clipboard. You need third-party apps to have this in certain scenarios. 
So this is a feature, not a bug, but it can be used against you. But people need to be aware of it. Yes, absolutely. I use one password I've mentioned before, both on iOS and on my Mac. On the Mac, in the preferences, you can choose how long a password or any item you've copied from one password remains in the clipboard. You can choose a number of seconds. On iOS, you only have an option uh, to clear the clipboard automatically after 90 seconds. Uh, 90 seconds to me seems a little bit too long. I have mine set to 30 seconds on the Mac. Yeah, at least it does give that option, which is, I think, important because if you forget to copy something else, what I do, because I'm paranoid and, and because I've done some research into this and I've found some surprising things, which I will write and talk about eventually, <laughs> but um, I, I've gotten to the habit of just copying one character, let's say like the last character of my email address. So if it's a .com, I'll copy the M or something. Um, so I'll paste the password and then I'll, I'll copy the .com or something. So to flush the clipboard. Yeah, it right. flushes the clipboard immediately rather than waiting for that 90 seconds or, or whatever for it to, to clear out if you happen to be using one password. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the RSA conference. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac user center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so Josh, you told us at the beginning of the show that you went to the RSA conference. Remind us what the RSA conference is. Okay, the RSA conference is a yearly event. They actually have a couple of these. There's one that they do in the Asia Pacific region, I think as well. Um, but the main RSA conference event is in San Francisco toward the beginning of every year. And this is a security conference for geeks like me who like to go and look, watch all these sessions and visit all the exhibitor booths and uh, watch keynotes and find out what everyone else is saying about here are all the latest things that you should know about in the security world. Sometimes people reveal new research that they've been working on that they haven't spoken about elsewhere. Um, and uh, there's lots of really good and interesting discussions on a variety of security related topics. And what does RSA mean? I feel like we talk about this every year, but <laughs> there's three cryptographers named Rivest, Shamir, Adelman, and those three 
came up with the RSA uh, cryptography algorithm. And uh, so they're, they're the inventors of, the, of, uh, of RSA, um, the technology. And RSA, the company, is, uh, names itself after that algorithm. So uh, that's where the RSA conference then comes from. And then uh, actually, interestingly, RSA conference is uh, a subsidiary of Dell. Of, of all companies. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, Dell owns RSA Conference now. How many people go to this conference? And how many of them were wearing masks? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who go. I don't know the exact numbers this year, but um, I mean, there's easily thousands of people who, would, uh, who attend these conferences. Uh, there were um, a fair number of people wearing masks. I mean, it certainly wasn't like everyone there, but... Uh, I would say, I don't know, maybe 2% of people were wearing masks all the time. Um, so, and, and I saw a lot of people traveling on the way there. Uh, so I took a train into San Francisco and um, there were a handful of people who were wearing masks on the train too. Um, so yeah, and interestingly, I think a lot of places are kind of sold out of their N95 masks because of the coronavirus scare everyone's kind of really worried about it and so a lot of people are just like buying out stock of of masks and things but they did have hand sanitizer kiosks all around the expo floor um and at the you know bottom and top of escalators and all those you know uh, typical places where you might have recently shaken somebody's hand or might be putting your hand on a handrail or things like that so they did a good job i also did see conference uh or uh, Moscone Center employees, really, um, who were going around and wiping down uh, surfaces like the uh, the check-in registration area, just to kind of help to prevent the spread of germs. So that was good. They were doing a lot of things right. Okay, a brief public service announcement. Everything that I've read says you don't need a mask, and that by buying masks, you're actually preventing these masks from being available to healthcare professionals, particularly in hospitals. So don't buy a mask. It doesn't really help you. It doesn't protect you. And you'll be less protected if doctors and nurses get infected. Yeah, that's a fact. I'm glad you have brought that up because <laughs> this is kind of a problem. And the only time you should be wearing a mask is if you absolutely have to be out in public and you are sick, then you should be exactly. wearing a mask. Then you'll be preventing yourself from infecting other people or yeah, but partly limiting your infection just limiting your infectability what's the word <laughs> yeah limiting your infectiousness right so yeah. i ideally i mean if you know you're sick you should not be going out in public at all but of course we understand that you know you may need to go to a doctor's office or something like that that's the scenario where you should be wearing a mask and basically everybody else doesn't need to be wearing a mask um, if you're, if, even if you have a weak immune system, wearing a mask is not necessarily going to help you that much. So. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though, a security conference with an actual virus around. Uh, well, yeah, a real world virus and not just computer viruses. Yes. Okay. So of all these thousands of people, there aren't many people who care about the Mac, are there? Apple doesn't have any official presence. And you told me before the show, there was only really one talk about Mac malware. Yeah, um, it, it was kind of, uh, this is fairly typical. Uh, okay, okay, so Apple doesn't like to have booths at other people's events. It's been a long, long time since Apple's done anything remotely like that. 
And it's just, it's just not Apple's style. Right. But, um, so there's not really any kind of Apple presence. Apple doesn't sponsor shows like this, but there are usually one or two talks related to Apple or Macs at these conferences. And there was only one this year. Um, there was another talk that actually mostly was focused on Linux malware, but kind of had a little bit to do with Mac malware. It was a very geeky and technical talk. We won't talk much about that today, if at all. But um, the one interesting talk that was very specifically focused on Mac malware was uh, given by Patrick Wardle, who is a, a frequent RSA conference speaker, also runs the Objective by the Sea conference that I'm going to be attending uh, very soon. And um, he spoke about kind of an interesting topic. His, his topic title was Repurposed Malware, A Dark Side of Recycling. We'll have a link in the show notes to a video of this on YouTube. Yes. And so basically what he talked about is that, uh, and, and he, you know, basically this, this could be with any kind of malware. It doesn't have to be Mac malware, but he knows Mac malware. And so that's what he was using as an example to present about. But among other things, he, he talked about the ability that hackers and nation state entities have of taking existing malware and tweaking it and repurposing it for nefarious purposes. Um, and so one of the things that goes along with that is the idea of false flags. This is where somebody who's creating malware specifically designs malware to look like it was created by somebody else. And one easy way for a nation state or anybody who wants to create some malware to do this is to just take some existing malware. There are samples out there. And even if you don't have the source code, you can do something called reverse engineering to sort of figure out how it was built. And then you can repackage it and redistribute it and you, there's some things you can do to tweak it so that hopefully it won't get caught, you know, and I say hopefully from the perspective of the attacker, hopefully it won't get caught by antivirus products. And, um, and all of this ultimately makes it look like the original nation state or whoever developed that malware is just doing the same thing again. Um, when in reality, it could be somebody else who's just repurposing it. So that was one of the things that uh, that he emphasized in his talk. So the goal of that is to make one country, nation state, look guilty of doing something that they weren't doing. Right. Sort of taking the fall for, for somebody else's espionage right. or whatever they're using this malware for. Um, so that was that was one aspect of it. And of course, he also mentioned that it's much cheaper if you're if you're already if you know you're going to be developing some malware, but there's already malware out there that does the thing that you want to do. It's cheaper to just repurpose some existing malware rather than hiring somebody to write some new malware from scratch. And so also from that perspective, um, you know, he talked about how this can save attackers money too. And so that's what they do. This is, by the way, none of this is like unique, you know, ideas that nobody else has thought of before. Patrick Wardle's not giving anyone ideas. It's, uh, this is already something that, uh, you know, bad actors, um, are doing to try to infect people. And, and these are some of the things that antivirus companies 
always have that challenge of, you know, when we write signatures for malware, we need to make sure that we're writing them in such a way that ideally they will catch as many new variants as possible, um, even before they're written. Okay, so the theme of the conference this year was the human element. What were they talking about there? The keynote speakers all, you know, were kind of encouraged to to incorporate this theme, and it was obviously very broad. But um, one thing that the human element can mean is that you know we're the weak link in security because you can have all the security controls in place that are available. You know, you can buy all the latest products and and have all the latest features in them, but Ultimately, the weak point often is the people because we we're we're weak when it comes to things like phishing. And although many of the people probably listening to this podcast and you and I might say, oh, yeah, no, it's no problem. We can easily spot phishing attacks. Right. We've been around the block. We, we've seen all kinds of samples of phishing malware. But all it takes is for one cleverly designed email that maybe it's even targeted at you. Um, there was one keynote speaker I remember who, um, who specifically said, I am one of these people who should never get fooled. And I almost clicked on a link once, um, or I did click on a link and then I immediately realized that was a mistake and uh, that it happens. And especially if somebody's targeting you, if they know your psychology, your weak points, then they can take advantage of that. And when someone does that, specifically targeting an individual, it's called spear phishing. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes uh, it's it's even called whaling in the case of like trying to to spear fish a, a CEO or something. That's also called CEO fraud sometimes, depending on the exact attack that's going on. Sometimes people will pretend to be a CEO and you know, email, say, the CBO, the chief business officer of a company and say, oh, I need you to wire something to so-and-so and I need it done right now because I'm trying to get this deal and they will only give me 10 more minutes to do it or else they're going to call off the deal. Um, those are the kinds of things that can psych somebody out and make them go and kind of panic and go, oh, shoot, I need to get on, get on this right away. And they act before thinking. Okay, so did they talk about deep fakes at all? I keep seeing more and more of these wonderful videos, like it was a video from Back to the Future with Robert Downey Jr. replacing, I don't remember which actor it was. Um, this is getting really serious. They did, yeah. Deep fakes came up quite a bit um, in a lot of conversations uh, in, in some of the keynotes there. And one of the things that um, I, I thought was sort of an interesting perspective on this is this kind of thing comes along every once in a while, right? And there there's was a period of time you could say where you could kind of know if somebody was trying to pretend to be somebody else. And now we're back in a period of time when that beca is becoming more difficult again. But um, it, there was an example given, I think it was at the uh, cryptographers panel uh, keynote. They, uh, they talked about how Back in like the early days of our country, right, of, of the United States, the founding of the United States, if somebody were to say that, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson said this or that, they could publish anything they want. And, and anybody could choose to believe that or not. And how would you know that he said that or not? Because 
there were no audio recordings. There were no video recordings. And you so couldn't it, Google it. You couldn't Google it. And so, you know, yep. or, or checked fact checking websites or things like that. And so how do you know that somebody actually said what they're purported to have said? It's one person's word against another. And so ideally, you know the person as well as you can and trust people that you believe you can trust and hope that they're trusting the right people or that they were there and can vouch for for somebody. Um, but we're, we're now, interestingly, getting back into another era where you can't necessarily believe everything that you see or hear. Um, and so that was kind of interesting to look at it from that perspective. You know, a lot of people are just very freaked out about the idea of deep fakes, but not thinking about it from the perspective of, yeah, but there is a certain element of, uh, you know, you have to, you have to kind of be wiser than whoever is, you know, putting out the false information. Right. Yes, but imagine someone gets a video of someone committing a crime and then puts someone else's face on it, or someone takes a video of two people talking, saying things, and then puts the faces of politicians on it, um, whereas they just created the whole thing to get a politician or, or several politicians to say things that they didn't say or have relationships with people they didn't have relationships with. Yep. Well, and looking at it from the reverse perspective, you could also have somebody who really was caught doing something on video who says, no, no, that's a deep fake. <laughs> right. Right. So, and so the question is, how do you authenticate these videos? Right. Um, yeah. And there are some people who uh, have developed this type of software who are really good at identifying the the little tiny flags in a video that can sort of tip them off to whether something is a deep fake or not. Um, now, of course, this technology is continuing to advance, and so it's going to continue to get better. And it's going to become more difficult to identify whether um, a video is a deep fake or not. But it's going to become indetectable. Possibly, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. 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 Um, and so again, that, that's where we get back to, um, you know, deciding who you're going to trust, right? If you see a video posted on social media, uh, you don't necessarily, you shouldn't necessarily trust it. Even if it looks like somebody trustworthy, even if it looks like them, if it sounds like them, question the source, try to figure out what the original source of that video was. Um, there, interestingly, there was actually a story just this past week. Um, I don't remember what country there, but there um, was a politician who changed uh, the who had a deep fake video presenting themselves, you know, that the the politician talking in a different uh, language or dialect than what they actually spoke to try to get a different segment of the population to be interested in voting for them. Um, so hmm. we're, we're already seeing this actually being used as a tool to try to help politicians. And, and, uh, so there was some debate about whether this was done surreptitiously and like trying to deceive people into voting for them or whether this is no, no, this is natural. This is normal because they, they want people in other, you know, who, uh, understand a different language or dialect to also understand what they stand for. So there's, this is already happening in the real world in politics today. Did you talk about election hacking at all? That's going to be a big issue coming up later this year, isn't it? Uh, 
Yeah, um, this is definitely always a hot topic. Um, election hacking is is something that everyone always wants to know about. It was talked about last year too, um, and and from multiple multiple perspectives, right? Because you have uh, some governments who have been accused of meddling in other governments' uh, election campaigns. So that's one element of this. And then there's also the element of, okay, well, if we're voting online or even just using electronic machines to cast our votes, how do we know that those machines or that those websites or whatever they might be are reliable? How do we know that somebody is not breaking in and changing people's votes? Um, or even, you know, that the developers of these are designing them in such a way that every so often it'll change a vote uh, without, you know, calling much attention to itself. Um, and I think the best comments that usually come out of these discussions are basically that, you know, we probably shouldn't be using electronics to vote. <laughs> we should just stick to the to the old tried and true paper ballot methods and have reliable people counting those ballots. Well, I know that um, I, I've seen elections, um, in, in particular when I lived in France, everyone votes in the local town hall or in a school in a city, and the paper ballots are there, and they don't move, and you have people from all the parties who are there watching the counts, and it's done very carefully, piles of 10, piles of 100. Right. Um, and so with the paper ballots, you always have a trace that you can follow. You can always recount easily, whereas with electronic, there's absolutely no way. Okay, that's enough for this week. I'm sure we'll have another conference soon. You said you're going to Objective by the Sea, and that's very soon. So you'll be able to come back and tell us about what's been talked about there, won't you? Yep. Yeah, I will definitely do that. We'll have, I'm sure, some real fun things because, again, this is a, an Apple-focused conference. So every talk is going to be Apple-related. So that's great. Okay, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>